spooky season is just about over. But don't worry, I have a few tales to share that may be the scare you're looking for. I'm Renee Nelson, and this is Unsolved Wyoming. This week, I have Cheyenne podcast host and author, Dean Peterson. Dean was kind enough to share some clips from his interviews with CJ Young from his show, That Doesn't Happen Every Day. My name is Dean Peterson. I'm based down here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I have a podcast called That Doesn't Happen Every Day. And my whole goal with the show was to just find everyday people and maybe even not so everyday people sometimes who've had interesting experiences and then I interview him about it. I try not to be on the podcast very much. You can hear me introduce the show. And sometimes I'll put in some narration to kind of tie the different points together. But mostly I see my job is just kind of helping that person tell their story um, by asking interview questions that I cut out of the show. Okay, that's awesome. And so can I ask why you, you, you take it that way? Are you just not like super into being interviewed or or like talking on podcast or just something that you rather it be like the focus of the story and the content? I think it probably started uh, years ago when I got into This American Life. And sometimes you hear, you know, a conversation, you hear the interviewer and the interviewee. But uh, the things I really love that I thought were really interesting and sometimes even like touching was when they the interviewer just kind of stepped out of the picture and they cut him or her out and just kind of, it seemed like that person was just telling the audience their story. So I like that a lot. And um, I like editing. I'd be really uncomfortable doing a live show. I I like to edit it. So it kind of has the most maximum impact while still being true to what, you know, the person really said and what they, what really happened to them. Definitely. I, I, I like that a lot too. And so I know that's really popular, especially with these kind of superstar podcasters right that they do these live shows and that just makes me want to jump out of my skin too because (laughs) (laughs) like I'm like but what but what if you do when something goes wrong I don't think I have the improv skills to pivot (laughs) in the way that you would need to and so I get it yeah so okay and so I know you also you also have a book as well can you tell us a little bit about your book Yeah, the book really doesn't have much to do with the podcast. It's about an Iraq War veteran named Tim Ross, who had lived in Arizona, but after coming back from Iraq, he gets a job teaching high school English in a really tiny Wyoming town. If you've ever been to Mountain View, it's between Rock Springs and Evanston in southwest Wyoming, and I changed the name to Meadowlark, but it's basically Mountain View in the Bridger Valley, and one of his students is kind of traumatized. This kid writes this very disturbing creative writing story about a girl being murdered on the gun range. And it bothers the teacher enough that he pulls this kid aside and says, hey, what's going on? Just wanted to ask about your story. And the kid won't really talk about it, but he does ask his teacher, do you believe in ghosts? And the teacher's like, no, he doesn't want to believe. He doesn't really want to remember the people that died in Iraq. He doesn't really want to think about some of the things that happened there. But that summer, when a teenage girl goes missing, 
David, the boy who asked, hey, do you see ghosts, leads Tim right to the body of a girl that the whole county had been looking for that had been missing for, I think, a few days. And um, when he asked, well, how did you know about her? He's like, well, I, I see people before they die. And that summer, uh, the boy disappears as well. David does. And Tim has to go find the man who's preying on people in a small Wyoming town. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like an intense and hits a little close for me. And, and so that's why I actually don't teach creative writing to avoid that exact scenario. And oh, wow. So, um, yeah, because, you know, students do, they divulge a lot in creative writing, which is what it's for. But then I think there's a lot of responsibility on faculty and teachers to kind of help with that kind of cry for help or, you know, some really intense you know, personal information that comes through. And so that sounds like an incredible, incredible book. And so um, where can folks find your book? They have it um, right now at the Book Rack in Cheyenne. It's, uh, let's see, I'm sorry. It's by, it's by Sportsman's Warehouse on, I okay. guess, the east side of town. And then Barnes & Noble also will carry it again when they, they reopen. Um, and then you can get it on Amazon. If you're up in Casper, they have it at Wind City Books. And then a lot of the, can I say it, you know, smaller towns also have it at their bookstore. So I, I try to get people to buy it from a bookstore first to support the bookstore. And if you can't get a hold of it, get a hold of me and I will see if we can just get you a copy, especially if you want to sign one. Awesome. Well, we'll include that. Um, I'll include that in my show notes too. And so that way, if people want to get in touch with you, you know, to get your book, they can, they can absolutely do that. So that's really exciting. I, I, I need to get myself a copy, it sounds like. Thanks, so, Jenny. Yeah, well, let's get into some, um, you know, it is, we're at the, already the tail end of Halloween season, which is wild. I can't believe it's already just about over. And so, but trying to plug in some spooky stories. And so from what I understand, you have a fair share from not only just like your podcast, but some other experiences as well, right? Right. So on um, on my podcast, again, the only real criteria is it generally has to be something either you experienced yourself or if you're kind of an expert about it. Like one of my episodes was about a man who went on a killing spree up in um, Powell in Cody, Wyoming in 1939. His name was Earl Durand. Um, he was killed during his killing spree, but we were able to get some old audio, old found audio that Mark Youngy had recorded of the man who shot Earl Durand when he was running around killing people. Um, and then we also interviewed a man who wrote a book about Earl Durand. So those are kind of my criteria. I, it either has to be something you have that happened to you or that you really are kind of an expert about in a real way. And from there, we, we roll the show. Not all my stories are scary. I have one where I interviewed my parents about renting a house from Bob Ross, the, the painter guy, when we were up in Alaska. <laughs> he wasn't famous yet. He was just this kind of eccentric, nice guy. And they rented a house for him, him. And then later they saw him on PBS. So I interviewed my parents about what that was like. Some of my scarier episodes, there's two that I have that are significantly supernatural. The one, uh, if you if you go onto my page, there's the Lady of Arlington, my friend CJ, who I hope will join you guys um, on the show. <laughs> it's better when he tells the story, but it does sound like he had a paranormal encounter when he was fishing with his father. I'm going to tell the story, but if you can get CJ to tell it, it's better. Is that okay, uh, Renee? 100%, yes. I, think... I just don't want to step on anybody. No, I, I think, you know, um, I know that people will be interested in hearing about the story. And so. But what happened is CJ Young was, I think, about 15. He was 
fishing somewhere south of Interstate 80, but still on the Wyoming side of the border, I think near Arlington, Wyoming. And at some point before they actually started to fish, they stopped their truck. And he said that a woman wearing, I think, a dress and maybe a floppy hat just sort of appeared, not like appeared out of thin air, but they didn't notice her before, but she was suddenly there. And she walked over the sagebrush and approached the truck with CJ and his dad. She went up to the dad's side of the vehicle, the dad was driving, and talked to them. And I I would ask you to listen to the story, um, but I think she was kind of odd in her responses and also said, well, it's, it's better you don't stay too long here or it's good you guys are leaving. And that was really odd. And then she did an abrupt, I guess, left turn and walked towards the back of the truck without saying anything. It wasn't like a goodbye. She apparently just walked and then she was gone and it bothered CJ and his dad enough because they never saw her walk off. They just kind of saw her turn towards the back of the truck and then she was gone. It bothered them enough that they literally got out of the truck and looked under the truck and looked into the truck's bed. Uh, and she was not there. And so they didn't know what else to do, but they got out of there and started fishing. But eventually they just kind of came to their senses about it, about why would a woman approach two men in the middle of nowhere? She's not armed. She's not on a horse. She's not with anybody else. She doesn't ask for help or seem to be in trouble or need help. Um, they just thought it was so weird. They got in their truck and then uh, went back to Rollins. But CJ's researched this, and there were two other people that have claimed they've had encounters uh, with with this woman. And some people think it might be linked to something that happened in the past. So I, I'll just kind of leave that, I guess, as a... Dean sets up a perfect intro into CJ's story. CJ, unfortunately, wasn't able to join us on the interview as originally planned, but I was able to listen to the audio from Dean's podcast and I couldn't help but add it. It's just too stinking good. So here is CJ's interview from one of the episodes from Dean's podcast. I think I was just shy of driving, so maybe 15. And my dad decided just kind of randomly on a weekend to say, hey, what if we go fishing? We head out there. And it was a very kind of average Wyoming July day. We just stopped on the road and my dad was in the driver's seat. I was in the passenger seat. One of us noticed that there was somebody walking down this little ridge to the left on the driver's side of the truck. And it was a lady. And I can still see her in my head to this day. She was wearing this kind of light, kind of a sundress. She had a big straw hat. The thing that jumped out at me is she seemed like she was barefoot. I don't remember seeing any shoes no stockings. I mean, maybe she had a shoe on. I just didn't notice. And so, you know, my dad and I were just kind of like, huh, no car, nothing she'd walked out of. I would have placed her in her, I don't know, maybe in her late mid twenties, somewhere in there. Kind of hard to say. She walked right up to the driver's side of the truck. And I don't remember the first thing she said. If we said hello or how you doing, something like that. But we, we started talking to her and she asked us, you know, who we were and what we were doing. And we just said, you know, nothing unusual. Oh, we're, you know, out here fishing. We're from Rollins. And and I, I know, I remember specifically we asked her what she was doing out here. And, and she said, oh, I, you know, I, this is where I stay. I've been out here a while. In hindsight, the, her questions were kind of evasive and a little odd. And, and her answers as well. We just kind of talked about the fishing. We, the only thing that really jumped out as weird was she said, well, you know, I wouldn't stay too long. And in the middle of the conversation... She just stopped talking. She turned to the right, like, no goodbye, no, well, good luck, or I got to get back to something. 
She turns to the right and starts walking towards the back of the truck, the end of the truck. And I'll remember my dad looked over at me and he, he kind of gave this kind of shrug, like, well, you know, with his face, kind of like, that was weird. And he looks up and he's like, where'd she go? And I look up and I turn around and I don't see her. And I look in the mirrors and I don't see her. And he's like, did she fall? And so we both get out of the truck at the same time. And we walk around behind the truck and we meet there. And there's no one there. My dad, he's like, he thought maybe she'd fell or did she climb to the back of the truck? Do we have someone crazy on our hands? Nothing. We looked under the truck. We looked in the bed of the truck. There was no cover around us, right? If you're a hunter, I grew up hunting. You'll notice things like cover, right? Bushes, things an animal could be in. There's no cover. It was open grass from the two track. I'd say at least a hundred yards before you got to cover. And that seemed a bit odd, right? She's just gone out of thin air, unless she was an Olympic sprinter. And even then, I don't know if they could have made it out of Lanasite. And so weirdly, it was almost like we just kind of ignored what had just happened. Like we got in the truck and we drive down to the creek and we get out and we put our waders on. We didn't say anything to each other. My dad said something first. And my dad, he looks over me. He's like, you know, is that pretty weird? And I was like, yeah, that was real weird. And my dad says, uh, that was expletive weird. <laughs> I was like, yeah, dad, that was real uncomfortable. He's like, we talked to her, right? He's, he's, I'm like, yeah, we talked to her. And he, we kind of were like puzzling out what we had just experienced standing in the river there in our waders holding these fishing poles. And I remember he finally said, he's like, you know what, why don't we get out of here? And I was like, okay, I'm all right with that. And so we, you know, we got back, we went to the truck and we turned around and we started heading back. And in hindsight, we, we've, we both noticed things that at the time didn't jump out at us, but now seem somewhat weird. Here is a young woman with no car, no horse, no anything, comes walking over here in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. I mean, this was... 30 minutes from the interstate on a two-track road, walks down to a pickup truck of two men who she's never met before. She's not carrying a rifle. She's not carrying any protection. And she comes right up and starts talking to us in the truck. No fear of us at all. And then all of a sudden just stops talking as if we're not there, like her face went blank. And so you, you, you think about these things in the end and you're like, I don't have an explanation for you. We, we thought, was it a ghost? Was it... A spirit? Was it something tied to the land? Is It sounds crazy, but like, is this a vampire, an earth spirit? It makes no sense. We aren't the only ones that have met this woman. My dad is a doctor in, in Rollins, and he for many, many years he worked the emergency room. He distinctly remembers one particular winter where he had a lady that stopped at the ER. Middle of winter, she came in because she thought she had a stroke or was hallucinating. And her story gave my dad chills because she described driving on Interstate 80 somewhere around Arlington to Wagon Hound. She had seen a young woman in a summer dress and a hat walking along the shoulder of the road. It was a snowstorm. It was a blizzard. And she said that she pulled over and rolled her window down and said, you know, my God, who are you? What happened? Get in. I'll drive you to town. And this woman opened her car door, opened the door, got in and sat in the seat. And she said the woman was distraught, looked cold, was pale, didn't talk to her. And she just kind of rocked in the seat. And she said she was thinking, you know, maybe someone, a car accident or she'd gotten lost from a cabin. And she said a couple miles down the road, she looked over and the seat was empty. And 
she couldn't believe it. She said she literally couldn't believe it. She wasn't from here. She was passing through a traveler. And she stopped at the ER in Rollins because she thought maybe she'd eaten something that was uh, causing her to hallucinate or, or she'd had a stroke. That's what she legitimately thought. Medically, she was fine. So, yeah, this whole experience for this lady was just beyond odd. And they had had a highway patrolman come in and talk to her. And to add an extra level to this, is the highway patrolman, without missing a beat, he's like, oh, you've seen the Lady of Arlington. That's what they call her. And the trooper said that highway patrolmen and sheriff's deputies that have worked that section of 80 for decades have talked about seeing a woman walking in a blizzard or walking in the countryside that when they they try to find her or try to help her, she disappears. And uh, he said that one of the troopers that he knew had had a similar experience where he put her in in his car and uh, on the way back to town, she had vanished. And so, you know, that, that really reinforced to my dad, you know, A, what we had experienced did happen, and B, it really emphasized that there's similarities that start to piece these stories together. One of my best friends from high school, I would hang out at his house a lot. You know, we played basketball together. We'd hang out at each other's house, play PlayStation. We're, we were hanging out, and his uncle was over there. And his uncle was offhand talking about a ghost story to his brother, my friend's dad, about this woman they'd met around Arlington hunting. This was back in the 80s when he was a kid. And he was hunting with his dad and his, I I can't remember if it was an uncle or grandfather, but another male family member. And and they were hunting. It was, he said, November, rifle season. They're hunting for elk. A woman walked into their camp. As he described it, he said she was wearing a thin dress. They were shocked. He said they thought she had gotten lost from a cabin or the highway. And he said she didn't say anything. He said she was, he remembers she was shivering. And he said she was very pale. And he distinctly remembers she wasn't wearing any shoes. And he said they were freaked out. He said, you know, they thought they'd found a survivor of something terrible. So they brought her over by the fire and they wrapped her feet in a blanket. They put a blanket around her shoulders. And he said they were trying to talk to her and say, you know, miss, who are you? What happened? Where'd you come from? He said she, she just acted kind of catatonic. She wasn't saying anything. She wasn't really responding to him. And he said, so they were talking about what to do. Should they try and go take her out tonight or or should they wait till the morning? Because, uh, you know, it's the 80s. They don't have a cell phone. So the way he described it, he said it, it's, it'll stay with him the rest of his life. And he said, it gives me even chills to remember him tell the story. He said she was like she woke up. That's how he described it. And he said she woke up and she, he said it was like she looked and noticed at them for the first time. And she looks around at all of them and looked at the blankets and she looks and says, you all shouldn't be here. And she threw off the blanket and he said she turned off and ran into the woods in the middle of the night. And again, barefoot. He said, there's still snow on the ground. It's November in Wyoming. And he said, so they start chasing after her and he said, they have flashlights. And they're like, man, they never got a name. He said, you know, they're yelling, ma'am, where are you? Girl, where'd you go? And he said, they chase after into the woods. And he said, they, you know, they're hunters. He said, they followed her footprints and he said... They followed him maybe, I don't know, he says middle of the night. He said, could have been 50 yards, a couple hundred yards. It's hard to tell. He said they were, their adrenaline was up. He said, but they come through into this little clearing. And he said, her prints stopped. They just stop. He said, like she flew away or vanished out of thin air. And he said, he remembers they all stood there and they looked at these prints ending. And he says, they, and they're barefoot. He said, you could see toes. And he said, they just kind of all looked at each other. And he said, 
they all just kind of remembered what she said, you know, hey, you shouldn't be here. And he said they, they went back, said none of them slept. He said they stayed up all night. He said, you know, one of had a flashlight looking at the perimeter of the camp. He says they didn't say hardly a word to each other. And he said the next morning they, they packed up and they went back to their truck. And he said they didn't even talk about the story with their, their spouses, he said, and friends for a couple of years. I distinctly remembered what jumped out at me in that story is that she acted kind of catatonic and then she was like realization came that she was with these guys and that she noticed them for the first time. The lady who told my dad in the ER that the woman had said nothing and was kind of just rocking and non-communicative and just disappeared. So it's almost like this entity itself is like disconnected from its surroundings but then sometimes becomes aware of what's happening around it. And there was a kind of a local historian in Rollins, and I had asked him about the story, and I said, is this anything familiar to you? And yeah, he said he'd actually heard of the Lady of Arlington, which is what most people that have heard the story know of her as. And he had said that there was a story he said he'd worked on trying to verify, and he said he'd found like a little blurb about it in an old newspaper, but he said he'd never been able to track down a very detailed account. But it was essentially a story of homesteaders in that area of Elk Mountain, and that the husband had left for work or travel or supplies and left the wife and kid at home, and there was a blizzard, and it took him a while to get back. And when he got back, the wife was missing and the kid was like dead, frozen to death at the house. You know, a pretty tragic event, but uh, that she was never discovered. And he said, you know, he'd never been able to really dig that in depth into it because he said he, you know, his opinion was that those kind of, um, for lack of a better term, accidents that cost people their lives in early frontier Wyoming were unfortunately common. I don't know. There's just no kind of real way to know Who is she and why is she there? I don't know about you, but the Lady of Arlington left me in literal terror. So because we couldn't just stop there, Dean goes on to set up actually another CJ story. So another one is called Teenage Tours of an Old Prison. It's CJ Young again, and it's CJ... um, what had happened is as a teenager, I'm not even sure if he was old enough to drive yet. I think his first or one of his first teenage jobs was to give tours of that creepy old prison in Rollins. Just to clarify, Rollins has like an abandoned prison that you can't go into because it's still owned and operated by the Department of Corrections. Then it has the actual prison. It's I think it's the only maximum security in Wyoming. But, and those are south of Interstate 80, but north of Interstate 80 in downtown Rollins is the creepy old Cheyenne Penitentiary and it's just spooky um as a kid you know since I was little and even now I love historic sites but a lot of historic sites are kind of disnified like you go into them and they're cleaned and they're scrubbed down and they have you know they just don't look bad whereas that thing what happened is I believe it was kind of turned over either to the county or city of Rollins don't quote me on all this and they sort of just opened the doors like after the prisoners had left, the city just started to give tours of it and nothing was really mitigated or worked over in terms of, you know, like you'll walk in there and there's still like pentagrams on the walls that prisoners had drawn and graffiti on the walls. And the shower room still has cracked tiles in it. Um, apparently, sometimes uh, inmates would crack a tile and it makes a really sharp shard. And sad oh. um, that's what they told me. And also the other thing that was weird i remember i was like i think i was 18 maybe 19 when i first went in there 
um, you can walk right up to the gas chamber and people were gassed in there. Uh, it, it, it was actually used, but you can sit in the chair where they strap prisoners down. They had strapped the prisoners down. So it's like this weird, like feeling the whole time of, I shouldn't be here or like, this is unclean. I don't know how to explain it. And sure enough, two or so, I didn't do it because I just felt weird about it. Call me superstitious or whatever, maudlin. But um, some of the uh, other tourists sat down in the gas chamber and got their pictures taken. Uh, and it's not a prop or anything. No, that, that really is where they had executed people. Anyway, my buddy CJ, um, a few years after that, had started working there as a, a teenage tour guide. And he talks about some of the stuff that happened from wet footprints showing up on the floor that shouldn't have been there to hearing someone whisper uh, to that horrible feeling he, he would get. I think it's in the shower area where the whole place, I, it's not, you know, rainbows and sunshine, but that shower area, yeah, there's something just, it's very dark. There's no windows and it, I, I wouldn't want to shower there. I pity anyone who had to. So <laughs> I started working at the Wyoming Frontier Prison. It was right around when I graduated high school back in 2004. For my first week, they had me go sweep leaves out of the gallows. And that was the creepiest thing I had ever done up until that point. Because, you know, you're standing there with this broom and you're kind of keep looking up at this trap door. And you're like, okay, this is, yep, this, this is where nine people were hung. This is really disturbing. The first time I experienced something that was unusual, it was in my first couple weeks. And I was giving a tour. On cell block A, there's an area called the dark side. And it's called the dark side because there's almost no natural light. If there's no lights turned on, it's essentially pitch black. And in the back of these cells... If you're standing at the back of them, you cannot see anyone there. You couldn't, someone could be standing six feet from you and you can't see them. But if you're that person standing in the cell looking out, you can see because there's enough ambient light that you can see someone else. So it's this kind of one-way effect of vision. To illustrate it, what we would do is when you give the tour, you stop there, you ask for a volunteer. So, you know, it's kind of a fun moment. Everyone's kind of like, oh, who's going to be the brave one? So I'm giving this tour, and it was to a group of tourists from Japan. They had a translator but didn't speak a lot of English. And this elder Japanese gentleman, he he stepped forward to walk to the back of the cell. And, I, you know, I pointed, and his translator said, walk to hit the wall. And he starts to go in, and this blast of air like someone turned on a big fan, comes out of the back of the cell. I'll mind you, this is a cell that was built in 1888. It doesn't have a central air system. It's a stone room. This air, like someone opened a door or turned on a fan, blew out. You could feel it on your clothes, your face, your hair. And this Japanese gentleman, he jumped out of this cell. And he starts yelling in Japanese. And the translator says, he says, there's something in there. He said, there's someone in there. So... I got out uh, my, you know, cell phone light and I turned it on and it's empty. There's no one in there, but he was freaked out. The tour was freaked out. And I'll admit to being a little, well, that was strange. Another time I was closing and I'm going through um, with the gift shop manager. We're closing up and we go lock up the death house and death row and we're coming back. We had walked by no more than 10 minutes at most prior to that. There was nothing there. And as we come back through the library, right in front of us, we both stopped and are staring at the floor because there are wet footprints that are coming out of the barber shop. That looks like someone walked out of the barber chair and their feet were wet. And they turn and walk into what we call the crossover. And these wet footprints... We follow them and they go into the crossover and they stop about two thirds through the crossover and they're gone. 
And then there's that moment, especially when you're with someone else, where you look at each other and you're like, wow, is this, is this real? Did this just happen? And you could reach down and touch and feel the moisture. We both went to the barbershop. We checked the sink. There's no running water in there. <laughs> Either this was paranormal or it was a super elaborate hoax by someone who knew the building, knew where water was, knew our route, how long they had, had the keys to do it. On top of that, I don't know if you could have got away with it that quick. Could you have carried a bucket of water in, made the wet footprints, got out of your shoes and then run away without spilling any water from the bucket? I, I, I question how you could have done in that time. Which again, I, it's not impossible, right? I can't rule it out. I have to be realistic, but it just, I would say it's highly improbable. And when you realize that there's not a logical explanation, there's kind of a spookiness, an unsettling that, that kind of settles in, but there's an excitement too, right? Because I think most, maybe not everyone, but the vast majority want to experience something in life that's hard to explain, right? That, that is unusual or mysterious, whatever that would be in whatever walk of life you're in. Another time I was giving a tour. So when you start off the tour, there's three little rooms you go through. In the second to the last room, there's a pole in the middle of the room, and it was called the punishment pole. And they used to handcuff inmates to that pole, and they'd be flogged from that pole. And there's a little window there. Legend always said they would leave that open, and you could hear the man being whipped or flogged. And so it was kind of a way to demonstrate, you know, essentially open punishment. What happens if you misbehave? So I, I've done this tour hundred times, you know, at this point. And I'm going through my routine and I open the window and I keep talking about the punishment pole. And I noticed a voice coming from the window, a whisper that was, it was human. It was a person. I think it was a man's voice. But it was like it was talking too fast or muffled. It was like you couldn't quite. It was like a, like a muffled like, hey, Anzana, how are you doing? What are you doing there? Like you can't quite make it out, but you can tell there's words. I had maybe six, seven people on my tour. They're looking at me. They're looking at the window over to my, behind my right shoulder. And I notice from their faces, they're starting to smile and kind of move to look in the window. They can hear it too. And finally, I stop. And I very softly, I'm like, can you all hear that too? And they kind of nod their heads. And everyone, we just all went silent. And we're listening to this voice coming from the window, very distinctly from that window. And it just stops. It cuts off. And something else had happened that I didn't even realize. It was like the air had gotten heavier, like static electricity on your body. And it was like it just dissipated instantly. It was like the air got lighter. It was like this, like you discharged the static. And it was gone. And I remember one of the ladies was like, no way. And this guy, kind of a big burly guy, looked like maybe an oil field worker or construction worker. And he's like, you got somebody back there. And I was like, no, I'll take it back and show you. So we kind of break out of the normal tour and I walk him back and I show him that the other side of this window is the old guard's cage. That's a separate barred locked area. There's no one in there. It's closed. And... There's no, there's no electricity in there. It's not like someone just plugged in a radio or turned it on, right? He, he was sure. He's like, you got to be screwing with us to try and get, you know, excitement. And I said, no. I, I said, I've never had this happen before. We continued, and that, that became the talk of the rest of the tour. You know, we were seeing other things, but everybody keep coming back to like, man, did anybody figure out what he was saying? What was happening? And it was later that summer. It gives me chills almost thinking about it now. I was reading this inmate's journal. Stanley Hudson. 
and kept a journal when he was there in 1908 to 1912, that rough time frame. And um, he is talking about this moment of this one particular warden who they all hated. And what they hated about him is they said, the man would punish you and not give you any reasons. You just end up being punished. And I'll always remember, I get to the point of Stanley's journal where he says, they called him the Whispering Warden, is what the inmates called him. He'd stand at the window in the changing room, which is where we were, and he would call guards over, and he would whisper to them through that window at at a level that no one could hear other than the guard, pointing out who should be punished and why, and no one would know why. And so they'd call him the Whispering Warden because he'd whisper through that window all the time. And it may have literally no connection, but man, it sent chills down my spine to read that from someone a hundred years earlier and having had that experience of that whisper coming through that window at that time. And not just me, but half a dozen people all heard it at once. So I do think that events that happen in history impact a location. So we have an area of the old pen called the shower room. A very unassuming name for the most sinister room in the prison. It's dark, it's cold, and we know from the records that multiple, I'm talking probably 10 plus, maybe more, murders happened there. The vast majority of us always felt uncomfortable in that area. Even people that were skeptics about ghosts admitted the shower room made them feel uncomfortable to be in there, the atmosphere, the aura of the place. The shower room, to me, has a heavy, bad feeling about it because there were predators there. There were human predators. And and my personal opinion is that in death, maybe those bad people, those bad spirits, go to what they knew. They preyed on people there, and the spirits are predatory in the in death. That That's my own personal theory. And I do think that that is maybe why you have so many things happen in the old penitentiary, because the people that were there in life... Many of them, not all, but many of them probably enjoyed scaring people, intimidating, hurting people even. And in death, I have no reason to believe their spirit would be any different, right? Uh, that That's my theory as to maybe what some of the differences are there. I got into the habit of every time I left the prison, when I would get to my car, I would turn around and I would say, thank you, but please stay here. And it was it was it's superstitious, I know, and maybe a bit silly, but... I always felt like if you were polite to the spirits, you know, maybe they weren't going to mess with you or follow you home. Cause that was always my paranoia is, am I going to wake up and see somebody standing at the end of my bed at home? Or am I going to have weird experiences at home now? And that was something I always worried about and was paranoid about. Um, and I, and I never did, but it was to this day when I visit, I, I say that even, even as a visitor, no longer a, a tour guide there you know, 15 years later. So to wrap up Dean and I's conversation, we had a really interesting discussion on haunted because how could I not ask a guy who has a podcast that doesn't happen every day about haunted? Right. Right. Well, and I think there's, there's this interesting aspect and, you know, and like specifically, you know, when we talk about, you know, true crime, because I'm predominantly a true crime, you know, yeah. podcast. And so, and I asked Ron Francel this question too, in that, you know, and I'm, I'm sure this prison was no different than any current prison in that lots of bad things still happen in prison, regardless if they 
you know, are old and abandoned or that, you know, that they're currently operated, you know, because people in prison tend to do bad things to other prisoners, right? Exactly. And so, like, do you, do you, like, so do you yourself, Dean, believe in, like, hauntings or do you believe that the reason why true crime and the supernatural are so tied together is because of, you know, the trauma between, you know, the living and what happens afterwards? Like, what are your thoughts
I, I, I apologize for that. I've been struggling with, I think I had RSV, so I was oh, not no. in the right state to be, nobody would want to hear any of that. <laughs> I've been there a couple times since I've started the podcast and it's definitely one of those things where you don't want that recorded voice living on to perpetuity. <laughs> so I get it. Um, well, do you have any updates for us from DCI? Yeah, we have a lot of wonderful news this week, which um, obviously doesn't happen often. But uh, between the Missing People of Wyoming Facebook group, law enforcement Facebook pages, and the DCI website, we have no new cases this week, which I don't remember the last time we've had that happen. Uh, so I'm just really, really excited about that. That's amazing. I love that because I felt like last week was a huge week of new cases. <laughs> it was, so to have happens. no new ones is great. Yeah. So, and then we have uh, both Mills and Cheyenne Police Department asked for assistance in locating uh, two missing juveniles. Both were found shortly after. The family of a missing juvenile in Riverton asked for assistance on the Missing People of Wyoming Facebook group. That was verified. And then shortly later, that juvenile was found. CI has removed two cases from their database, one from Natrona County, the other from Fremont County. And lastly, the remains of Mark Anthony Strutmatter were discovered nearly three years later to the day from when he went missing. He went missing October 19th, 2019, and they were able to identify his remains uh, via dental records. So although it's a sad ending, at least there's some closure for that family uh, waiting that long after he had last been seen going out hunting. I'm, I'm assuming they would know what to expect with this case and uh, hopefully, you know, can bring them some some closure and and, I, you know, I just feel for the family and um, I'm grateful that uh, some other hunters were out there and, and able to find those remains for them. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that's why it's important to keep these, especially missing hunter cases out in the public, especially during hunting season, because if you do have somebody who's missing. And as you said earlier, you know, we probably know what to expect. Then, you know, the sooner those remains are reported and, yeah, we can get the family closure. I think that's, that is some, that's a small gift in a really tragic, you know, situation. Sure. Uh, the other kind of big news is for folks who've been keeping up on this case, because again, it was my first case that I, I recorded and, uh, and did for the podcast is Irene Gakwa. And so just recently, as of today, and this has already been, this will be the second continuance that has happened, but Nathan Heitman has requested and been granted a second continuance in terms of the five char felony charges that he's currently facing. And they're citing that it is the media on how they're getting these continuances. There's a such high media coverage. As we know, charged in May, for three felonies related to financial crimes. He has already had one continuance. This will be his second continuance. The most recent update that has happened be, um, before this is that as of October th 13th, there was an eight-hour search on his property by the Gillette PD and the FBI. This is the second time that the police searched Teichman's home in relation to Gakwa's disappearance. However, no additional updates have been released by the police regarding the search, which involved three teams of cadaver dogs and multiple boxes being removed from the premises. So it's it's hard because I think, you know, people are really wanting to see a resolution of some sort coming from this case. And so to have a second continuance, it's just 
it's it's just really prolonging the you know this for the family the folks who have been searching for her it's just prolonging the whole entire situation Yeah, it's been it's been frustrating. Uh, I don't like to speculate on cases. I think like as far as the uh, missing people group goes on Facebook, I try to keep that stuff as quiet as possible. But with a case like this, it's been quite unique in that they haven't charged him uh, with her murder um, or her disappearance in any regards to that. But he's been charged with quite a few other things. And it's uh, it's blatantly obvious at this point that he's done something. And uh, it's really, I just feel for the family. I know there's a lady out there that does a lot of searches. And I don't remember her last name. I know it's a April. And she lives out there. She was never friends with her. But but she's done quite a few searches and, and put together search parties. Um, you know, Jen, who wrote this article up, amazing woman who has, you know, kept on top of this story. And I, I love that it's getting that extra attention on this case. Um, I think before... Uh, we wouldn't have seen this kind of attention, but there's been a there's been a huge shift in how media covers missing persons cases. And I think this would have easily been one that would have been uh, brushed under the rug. Uh, as frustrating as it is, it's still there's still a lot of good news and they're still moving forward with a lot of evidence. Uh, it's it, it feels like law enforcement is is really up on this case as much as they can be with as little evidence as they have. Right. And so um, Stacey Kester, she's the one who's been really a huge advocate for. That's who it was. Yes. Yeah. For correcting that. Yeah, absolutely. And so for Irene. And so one of the things that she is doing is that she's launched a reward fund leading to information that results in the arrest or finding of Gakwa uh, as of Wednesday. So I believe that was yesterday, October 26th. The reward money has reached $12,000. That's and wonderful. So it is. That's huge. It's a really big deal. And so, you know, and I think that's, you know, the thing that as tragic and horrific as this case is you know and like you said the um the aspect of the media finally you know getting the coverage that it should be giving to this case i think you know the thing that i have fallen you know just has made me feel so uplifted in this case is just how the community members have come together really support you know in the search of irene as well as in support for her family who is not local right she has family in idaho and she has family in kenya and so to have you know somebody who's local and able to kind of be the boots on the ground for them i think is incredible and such a positive aspect to the story if there is a positive positive aspect to be had yeah i couldn't agree more i know um just how missing persons cases are handled Obviously, financially, the state could not keep up with this kind of this kind of work. So if it wasn't for people like that, these cases where either they don't speak with their family or their family lives in a different state or maybe their family, uh, for whatever reason, isn't capable of helping in search efforts and and getting the word out there. Uh, th those cases really struggle to see this case not have that um, kind of same story is, is just wonderful to see. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm glad that there is there are some kind of positive highlights in both of these cases, especially that DCI doesn't have any new cases. So I hope people go into their Halloween weekends safe and have loads of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining me this week, folks. Until next time.